You're listening to Hebrews to Revelation, Lesson 9. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. If you are benefiting from these worldwide classroom lectures, please consider supporting this free ministry. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage, worldwide-classroom.com. Thank you very much for your support. Well, let's go on a little farther in Hebrews. And we got up to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 18. And I wanted to take it to 10:18 because that really is the breaking point in the book of Hebrews. That's where the great change uh, takes place from exposition, the exposition he's been eager to do um, of Jesus as our great high priest, to uh, meditations on Jesus' high priestly ministry. It's also true that at this time, he's going to start to turn our attention toward the character of faith, the faith that allows us to appropriate this. Faith has been uh, mentioned a couple times. It's going to become ever more prominent a little bit later. Now, chapter 10, verses 19 through 39, is another warning section. And it's actually very similar to the warning section that is found in chapters 5, 11 through 6, 10. The basic, there's a basic quartet that is found in both places. Uh, first of all, then, there is an exhortation to apply the theology that's just been presented to the, to the present situation. That's in 19 to 24. And second, there's a warning against deliberate sin. That's in verse 25 through about 31. Uh, again, similar to chapter 6, verses 4 to 8 is the warning against deliberate sin. And here, really, this is, this is extremely sharp. We won't go through it because we already covered it last time in, um, in chapter 6, but extremely strong language in chapter 10, which basically says, if you don't draw near to God in worship, you still have to do with Him. If you don't fall down on your knees in praise you will fall down on your knees in terror. Because you cannot escape God. One way or another, you will have to reckon. You will have to stand before Him. But if you deliberately refuse to come near after professing Him and persist in that, there will be no sacrifice for you. Then in then the next section, 32 to 34, as before, He then encourages Him again. He says, Now, I really do expect better things of you. Then this warning, 32 to 34, says, Now I know how you handled the first crisis. And the first crisis, you gladly suffered confiscation of your property and identified with those who are in prison and so forth. And I'm confident the same thing will happen again. One person put it this way, Remember the bad old days. Remember the bad old days, the first time you thought things were really rough and how God carried you through and you were faithful. Well, the bad old days are going to be back again. And you'll make it just like you did last time. The point, of course, is that a lot of times we learn most about God and about loving and serving God when things are difficult. Precisely when it's hardest to obey or hardest to remain loyal, then when we do obey or remain loyal, it confirms us. Someone offers us an easy way to do something wrong or to step away from fellowship with God and we resist, then that makes us stronger. And then finally, there is an appeal to persevere, to show faith, and reap the blessings in chapter 10, verses 35 to 39. Now, what I'd like to focus on is that first section, 
First, maybe, yeah, first section primarily, verses 19 through 25. And he tells us here uh, very plainly that he wants us to, um, to meditate on and to apply what he's saying here. And it goes like this in verse 19. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, the new way he opened, let us, now just watch this for a minute, how the word, the phrase let us appears repeatedly. Verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled from a guilty conscience, our bodies washed. And 23, let us hold unswervingly the hope we profess. Verse 24, let us consider how to spur one another on toward loving good deeds. And 25, let us not give up meeting together. So what he's saying is, Meditate on the consequences of this sacrifice that God has given us. This ends the barrier on God's side. But, now that we have a clean conscience, there's also removal of the barrier on our side. Jesus offered the sacrifice, but he also cleansed us. And so now the time has come to draw near to God, to enjoy his fellowship, to enjoy his blessing. And the time is here, verse 24, to encourage one another, to spur one another on toward love and good deeds, to live joyfully in our corporate life, uh, to have the fullness of Christian virtue as it comes in fellowship. You can't live alone. You'll never have all that you need. You'll never have sufficiency in yourself. So join together. Spur one another on. Uh, this is your privilege as Christians to come into God's presence together. Don't, then he gives a negative let us, let us not, verse 25, give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. I have to give a little aside here on let us not give up meeting together. What's the way in which this Bible, verse 1025, Hebrews 1025, is commonly used? Get to church. Go to church. Don't forsake meeting together. Now, I'm all in favor. Did we talk about this a little bit last time? A little bit? Okay, I'm all in favor of going to church. But this passage, as we saw last time, is not really about the importance of church attendance. Church attendance is important, absolutely. But what this is really talking about is forsaking the assembly. It's not, it's, it, erratic attendance is bad, but that's not the topic here. The topic here is forsaking the assembly. And there's two ways that can happen. There's one way that it happened back then, and it can happen today too, in which people say, I don't want to be identified as a Christian. If I don't go to church, if I don't associate with Christians, then I will be free from persecution. Maybe the, maybe the persecutors, presumably Romans, will not know. And in this way, then, to refuse to go to church was to say, I have no part in the fellowship, the body of Christ. Maybe going back to Judaism, maybe simply saying, uh, you know, I want to lay law, I just want to be a private, secret Christian and hide out here. Today, people don't exactly forsake the assembly that way. I do want to just say a little word about people who almost never go to church. Parachurch ministries. In fact, my cup here from which I'm drinking my water tonight says Young Life. I'm all in favor of Young Life and, and uh, you know, Reformed University Ministries and Campus Crusade and their varsity and Fellowship of Christian Athletes. All those things are wonderful, okay? But they can become the substitute church for those people. And some organizations are 
you know, fight might maim to avoid that, and others don't really care. But the truth is, if people are saved and come to know the Lord on Wednesday night meetings, it can have a harmful effect. And if you're part of any of those parachurch ministries, I would urge you to labor mightily to tie people into the local church. Then, of course, you know, there's love of travel and distrust of the organized church and putting work first and putting leisure first. And, and it really is deadly to drop out of church, work with people in this. It's still not exactly what Hebrews is about, but it is important to attend. Chapter 10, verses 26 to 31, then move to the next phase, the warning phase, in which he is describing to them the danger of deliberate sin. He says, now if we deliberately, see the transition, he says, let us do all these positive things. Then he says, there's also one negative, let us not forsake the assembly, because, 26, if we deliberately keep on sinning, after we have the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice is left, but only fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. And that promise back in chapter 2, I'll make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That'll really happen to us. We'll become a footstool. And and the idea that God will avenge his enemies, that's going to happen to us. Well, but then he says, no, not really, because I don't think that's what's going to happen to you. What's going to happen to you is, verse 32, you're going to remember the earlier days, and you're going to return to those days. Uh, so, he says, verse 35 and following, don't throw away your confidence. God is coming soon. And we are not of those who shrink back and forsake the assembly now in verse 39 and are destroyed. But we are the ones who believe. And we are the ones who are saved. God is coming. And although he worries about them, he knows they'll persevere. He knows they'll be faithful. He knows they won't shrink back. He knows that by God's grace, the fidelity they showed the first time will be shown again. But the crucial thing here is to remain faithful, to have faith, to show faith. And that leads us, of course, to the great faith chapter of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. Now, before we get into the chapter, I'd just like to play uh, maybe a tiny bit of a game with you and ask you if you'd be willing to think with me about what faith is. Now, first of all, I just want to tell you what faith, give you a classic definition of faith, okay? And then we're going to work on that little thing I have on the board over there. Um, faith, people say, historically, theologians say, has three parts. You ready? Number one is knowledge. If you believe that Jesus was a monk who lived in Sri Lanka in the year 925 to 945 A.D., and he was a great teacher of wisdom, you will not be saved by believing in Jesus. You have to know who he was. Knowledge. To know what he did. Second thing is assent. Assent with two S's, not S-C. That is to say, agreement. And say, not only do I know that the Bible teaches this, or Christians teach this, but I actually believe it's true. You, know, you understand that some people can know the content of the Christian faith very well and not believe it. Maybe you know professors of religion, or people who study culture or whatever, and they may study the Christian culture for some reason without believing it's true. So the next thing is assent. I not only know it, but I believe it. And the third is trust. That is to say, 
not only believing it cognitively, but believing it in your heart. Believing it affectively. Believing it with the whole being. And, and laying your life into the hands of the Lord. So that's what faith is. Just a quick definition. Now, what I'd like to do is ask you to think about uh, the time frame of faith for a moment. Uh, now, of course, we have three time frames in which we operate. And they are the past, the present, and the future. And let me just ask you a simple question. When you think about Paul, well, when you think about faith, which one, what do you think about it relating to more? The past, the present, or the future? How do you say that when you think about your faith, you're thinking essentially about the past? About, you know, kind of looking back to what Christ did in the past and trusting in Christ's completed work to see a few hints. Okay, how many of you think of faith primarily in terms of the present? You're trusting in Christ right now. And how many of you think of faith primarily as something of the future, what Jesus will do for you someday? Which would you say in Paul's theology he emphasizes the most? Is that a hard trick question? What do you think? Okay, I hear a number of people saying the past, and I think I could agree with that. I think that Paul's focus in his theology is very much on looking back and understanding Christ's sacrifice, his death, his resurrection, and how that provides atonement for us. Of course, there's a reference to trusting him now, and there's you know some things about Christ coming again. But we probably think of Paul as mostly meditating on the work of Christ past and its implications for us. Now, what about Hebrews? Where does Hebrews focus? The answer is, he has a special focus. Of course, he's interested in the, in the present. Of course, he's interested in the past. But to some extent, he is going to emphasize the future-orientedness or future-orientation of faith. And what I'd like to do is race through Hebrews 11 and show you how the heroes of the faith are largely pointed or essentially pointed toward the future. We can think of perhaps uh, the, one of the first ones who is mentioned in verse 7. In fact, verse 1, I'll just start with verse 1. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Verse 1. Uh, without faith, it is impossible to please God, verse 6 says. Why? Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who come to him. Of course, the reward is future. Then verse 7, we have Noah. You see how Noah's faith was future-oriented? What was he believing? He was believing it's going to rain. He'd never seen rain. And if you read the Old Testament, one way of interpreting it is that he built that ark for 120 years. We might say every time he picked up his tools, his hammer, not his nails, of course, but his wood pegs, every time he built that box, an ark is not a boat, by the way. An ark is a box. You know, it's, it wasn't made to navigate rivers. It was a box that floated. The Ark of the Covenant is, has 90-degree angles. It doesn't have a, a, you know, a bow and a stern to it, right? An ark was a box. Every time he built that huge box on dry land, he was saying, I believe that it will rain. How about some other patriarchs? How about Abraham? Is Abraham's faith future-oriented? What was, what was Abraham? Give me some indications of his future orientation. What was he looking to God to do? Future, yes. 
Okay, he believed that if he sacrificed Isaac, God would raise him from the dead. Let's go more with Isaac. How old was Abraham when Isaac was born? He was 100 years old. He was 99 when it was announced. How long did he wait? 25 years. He, for 25 years, he waited. What other things did... How about chapter 12 of Genesis? You know what's in there? What did he do? Yes. Sarah? Okay, he was given some promises. He would have land, that he would have seed, descendants, and he would be a blessing to the nations. How much of that did he see? He was told that he would be, his descendants would be as numerous as the sand of the seashore. What did he see? Well, the truth is he saw seven. If you read the whole story, he saw seven or eight children. Uh, but that's not multitudes like the sand of the seashore. And really only one heir. And the land? How much land did he get? The only land he owned was the land he buried his wife in. So he hardly got any of it. He looked forward. And, and what did he do? He, you know, God called him to a land he did not know. He wandered around seeking a home. All right, how about the other patriarchs? There's an odd little thing going on in chapter 11, verse 22, 23, 24, where it says, Joseph, near the end of his life, gave instructions to the Israelites about his bones. What is that all about? Why did he care about his bones? What did they do with Joseph's bones? They carried them out of Egypt. Why? Because he believed that God promised that there would be a land that his people would possess. How about Moses? Was Moses' faith primarily future-oriented? What, what was the focal point of Moses' life? What was he looking toward in his ministry all the time? He was looking to the promised land, entering the promised land, right? Did he enter the promised land? He only saw it from, you know, from a mountaintop. So he, too, was future-oriented in his faith. And not only so, but the next section, uh, in verses 32 to 39, shows how much this had to be so. In 32 to 39, it shows, uh, with a sort of a progression, what faith is like in hard times. He says, what more shall we say? By the way, this is when I know that he was a preacher. Because he goes on to say next, I don't have time. Preachers are always worried about not having enough time. The choirs are always going too long, you know. And they're cutting into our time. So that's how I know he's a preacher. Um, I don't have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, the David, Samuel, the prophets. Who? Now, already here's what they do. Verse 33. Who through faith conquer kingdoms. That's positive. Number two, they administered justice. We can think of David and Samuel here. David conquered kingdoms. Samuel administered justice. And gained what was promised, like, you know, David did. He got a huge kingdom. But then it starts to switch a little. Who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames. Who's he talking about now? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Whose weakness was turned to strength and became powerful in battle. Now that may be back to David or, or you know, Gideon or somebody. And routed foreign armies. So now we're back to the conquest. But then again back to trouble. Verse 35, women received back their dead, raised to life again. Sometimes they won these battles, administered justice, defeated king, you know, had kingdoms, defeated enemies. But now we've worked in three negative. Shut the mouths of lions. What kind of a victory is that? That's a victory of escape. Escaping the flames is not a victory of an army. It's, it's escaping from being killed. And then talk about the narrowest of all escapes is when your child dies, and then they're brought back. 
That's really barely escaping, we might say. Then he goes on to say, others, now it gets even worse, were tortured and refused to be released. There was never an escape. The word was, if you just admit, you know, repudiate God, you can be released. But they wouldn't do it. And they never were released. So they might gain a better resurrection. That implies that they were killed. Some faced jeers and flogging, while others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. Now we have no deliverances at all. It's a terrible death. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They lived. They wandered in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. See what he's doing here. He starts off with this portrait of faith future-oriented. Then he says, well, sometimes it was great, splendid victory. Other times faith allowed us to escape. But brothers and sisters, he says, there were times when faith was expressed by not repudiating the faith even though you had to die for it. And that's future orientation, you see. That's saying, I do not see how it will ever come. The only way in which my faith will finally receive its fruition is after my death and after my resurrection. He goes on to say that these, at the end of chapter 11, these were commended for their faith. Now, there's a word here, commended. It's sort of a play on words in the Greek. The word is, they were marture thentes. Now, you might possibly hear in the word, marture thentes, something else. You hear a word in there? That's right. They, martyr is the word. But now, martyr doesn't exactly mean somebody who's slain. The word marturo and martur, the noun, means a witness or someone who testifies, and to give a, and to, to the verbal form means to witness or to testify. And then the strongest form of witness or testification is when you are willing to die for your testimony. That's where the word martyr in English comes from. <clears throat> but the idea is that God commended, God martyrethentes, God testified to them, or God attested them. He said, you know, it's now certain. And I will testify that it is certainly true that they had real faith, even though they never received what was promised, because they are willing to die for their faith. This proves that God is on their side. Some people sometimes say, well, you know, where's your God now? If your God is so great, why doesn't he get you out of jail? If your God is so great, how did you fall into our hands? And the answer is, even when that taunt comes, God still commends or testifies Yes, I am on their side. Yes, I am their God, and, and they will receive vindication in eternity. Indeed, he says in verse 40, God plans something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Together we go on to maturity. Together. Now verse 12, verse 1 of chapter 12 then introduces the next theme almost seamlessly. Here in chapter 12, verse 1, what we have is this call to run on in the faith. But uh, it's not simply a matter of us running on, and this again is hidden by our English translations. In verse 1 it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, now can you guess what that word's going to be? It's that same word. The word is from that same martyr family. God witnessed to them. And now when we run, we are surrounded by those who are 
who are witnessing to God. That is to say, when someone is willing to, to give themselves to God, even to the point of death, God testifies to them, but that's not all. They also testify to God. So when we, now you see how this is being applied to the Hebrews, when we, he says, get ready to run, chapter 12, verse 1 says, therefore, since we, he's ready to draw conclusions again, are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us, we're in another let us session, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and run the race marked out for us. That is to say, when we as Christians run the race, we are not in a stadium running with a bunch of spectators. It's not like watching luge in the Olympics and you say, what are these people doing? You know, especially two-man luge. Why are these men lying on their backs on top of each other? You know, why is this noteworthy? You say, what is this? I have no idea what's going on here. That is the antithesis of what's happening when we run our, our life as Christians. It's not people who wonder what they're doing. It's not people who are cheering us on. It is people who have run the exact race. They're not spectators. They're not crowds. They're not the audience. They're witnesses who say, I also ran. And God was faithful to me even though I died. Perhaps. Others, I lived. God was faithful to me and carried me to the end, and he will be faithful to you as well. Have you ever seen an audience in which there was somebody in the audience who knew exactly what the performer was up to? There was a, there was a concert on campus, maybe somebody went to just a week ago, in which a, a wonderful guitarist was playing. And, you know, I play enough guitar, you know, G, D, C, A, E, E minor, A minor, you know, about three other chords. And I think that's just great, you know. But he was doing a lot more than that. I mean, he, his, uh, you know, his fingers were just flying all over the place. And I knew that he was really good. But in front of me, there was somebody in the row in front of me. There were actually three people in the row in front of me who were just going crazy the whole time. You know, there'd be the guitars would be playing something. And there'd be, especially one guy who was sitting there, and he'd go, oh. Oh, and he, you know, doubled the guy. Oh, you know, didn't you see that? And and just, you know, agonizing and bending over and lifting his hands and writing things down and and you know, I just had to find out who this was. I don't usually introduce myself to strangers, but I just knew that he had to be either a professional guitarist or an instructor of guitar or you know, an expert in the history of guitar playing or a critic for Rolling Stone magazine or something. And in fact, the man who was just groaning with ecstasy was a professor of guitar. And the person he was hitting the most is a, is a professional guitarist who plays in bands around St. Louis. See? They were good enough to know what was going on. I knew it was good, but they were saying, man, this is unbelievable. You know, I'm a pro and I can't believe it. When we run the Christian race, that's what we have. We have people who know exactly what we're going through. They appreciate exactly how difficult it is. They appreciate exactly how difficult it is to be faithful. And they say, God will carry you through. So, let us, God will carry you through. Therefore, let us run with endurance the race that is marked out for us. Thanks for listening to this worldwide classroom lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. 
Sensing a call from God to serve in ministry? Visit covenantseminary.edu. Check out our degree programs and the many other distinctives that make Covenant Seminary a place committed to equipping you for a lifetime of ministry. That's covenantseminary.edu.